Okay, so there are two judgments, two judgments that we see recorded. Well, there's more than, more than two judgments, but there's two that we're going to discuss this evening. There's a judgment for believers and there's a judgment for unbelievers. So what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to, dis- to start by discussing the judgment for believers. God's word is clear about the truth that there is a future evaluation for believers. In scripture, this is referred to as the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. So the question that we need to ask is, what is this assessment and why is it important for you and me? And so let's just jump, go ahead and jump right into the text and, and look at it together. First of all, we need to answer the question, what is a Bema or what is a judgment seat? Okay, it's helpful for us to understand what it is if we're going to talk about it. In the New Testament world, this judgment seat or the Bema, it was a raised platform in a prominent position in the city. It was a place where city authorities could sit, they could welcome visitors, they could execute justice among their citizens, and they could offer rewards to well-deserving citizens. If you go back one picture, one picture, Noah, and uh, I, have an artist, I have an artist's rendition of what a potential, of what a potential bima would, would look like. And so actually in, in Jerusalem, if you remember, when Jesus was brought before Pilate, he stood before the bima in Jerusalem. He stood before the judgment seat. And so Pilate would have sat on the judgment seat. You can see there a stone slab. Again, this is an artist's rendition, but I'm just, just to give you the idea. So it was a large raised stone platform. City officials would sit here. Government officials would sit here. And this is where much of the administrative business of the city would have been done. The term Bema is used 12 times in Scripture. I just told you Pilate sat on the Bema in Jerusalem when he issued the sentence of crucifixion. Paul had lots of experience before various Bema seats in Scripture. When he was in Corinth, he was dragged before the Bema of Corinth by the Jews. You can read that account in Acts chapter 18. Noah, if you've got that next one, this is actually the Bema in Corinth that is still standing today. And so this is the seat that Paul would have been dragged before in Acts chapter 18. And it was here that he would have made his case before the city officials in Corinth. You can go read that account later. But you can see, I mean, it's all raised platform, and from here, this is where the administrative business would have been done. So the Bema had three primary functions. We've already noted it served as a court of justice. That was Paul's experience. That was Christ's experience. Uh, the Bema also had a military, a military purpose. So in the Roman army, uh, when the legions would go out and they would be camped, when, when they would camp for an extended period of time, they would construct a bima inside of the camp. Uh, and that was a place where justice and discipline were administered. So if troops got out of line, they did things that they weren't supposed to do, that is where, that is where the discipline would happen. And then finally, the, the bima would serve as a stand for officials during athletic events. So we're used to our referees getting on the field and actually running around with the players. But in the Roman world, what would happen is the arena would be built around the Bema and the officials would sit on top. And from there, they would evaluate the athletes as the games were going on. So it was from this this seat that the judges would enforce the rules. And afterwards, the winning athletes would come before the Bema and they would be rewarded for their efforts. And I think that it's this third picture, this idea of the athletic events that most accurately represents what the Bema Seat judgment is going to look like for believers today. 
Now, uh, if you're back in 1 Corinthians, go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. I, I believe that Scripture places the timing of the Bema right after the rapture of the church. I'm going to show you a graph in just a second. But I believe that this judgment takes place in heaven. Remember, when Jesus Christ comes back at the rapture, he will snatch us up to be with him. And in heaven, immediately after the rapture, this evaluation will occur. You say, well, where do you see that in Scripture? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. It says this, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Let me explain to you. I don't just want you to take my word for it. Let me explain to you why I believe that this verse refers to the Bema Seat and why we place it immediately after the rapture. According to this verse, the Lord will come back. And for church-age believers, when does that occur? Well, it occurs at the rapture of the church. That's the next prophetic event. Paul is writing to the church. And so when the Lord returns, he will snatch us up to go be in heaven with him. And so after that, I think this verse is clear. So after the Lord comes, what will happen? He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and he's going to make manifest the counsels of, heart, of the hearts. And so there's going to be this period after the rapture where God judges every motive and action. And since we will be in heaven with the Lord at this point, I believe that this evaluation must take place there. And then you can see every man will have praise of God. So the end result of this judgment is the praise of God by every believer. Okay, so in our end times chart, Noah, you can go ahead and put it up on the screen. The beam of seat will take place in heaven immediately after the church is caught up. So some of this, I apologize, the, the text in the background isn't great. I borrowed this from my dad and I didn't have time to change the colors. Uh, it's good to have a dad you can borrow things from occasionally. All right, so uh, but you can see here um, the crucifixion and then Jesus Christ ascends. This is where the church age, this is where you and I live today. Jesus Christ will come back and snatch us up at the rapture. And then while the tribulation period is going on on earth, you and I have discussed that in detail, but simultaneous with what's going on on earth, what happens in heaven? Well, you and I will be being evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, and then there will also be the marriage supper of the Lamb. We, unfortunately, in this course, we can't take time to discuss that in detail, but that is when I see the Bema Seat occurring. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, the purpose, the purpose of the Bema Seat. Hey, let's talk a little bit about the purpose of the Bema Seat. The, the Bema Seat is a place of evaluation and reward for church-age saints. This is everyone who has placed their faith and trust in Christ between the resurrection of Jesus through the rapture of the church. Okay, so we've already discussed what happens with Old Testament saints. We've already discussed when tribulation saints are going to be resurrected. So for those in the church age, from the resurrection of Christ to the rapture of the church. And the Apostle Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, for we. Okay, now, who's the we that Paul is writing to? Well, he's writing here to the church at Corinth, okay, but we understand that he is writing to believers. He's writing to believers. So we, believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, it needs to be said, and it needs to be said clearly that 
The Bema Seat of Christ has nothing to do with our salvation. Okay, let me say that again. The Bema Seat of Christ has nothing to do with our salvation. Let me explain. We stand before the Bema because we are already in Christ. So it is not a question of if we are in Christ. If we stand before the Bema, we are already in Christ. We are in Him. And as a result, we stand before that judgment. At salvation, there is a great exchange that takes place. God takes our debt of sin and he plays for it completely with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and he places that into our account. So when God looks at our account, he doesn't see just zeros. All right, so you and I were in debt in our sin. And when Jesus Christ paid the punishment for our sin, he didn't just clear the debt. No, he put something into our account as well. And it was the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't just see an empty balance. Instead, he sees the overflowing wealth that comes in the form of Christ's righteousness. You and I have a full bank account because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes that clear. It says, For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us. Even though Jesus Christ knew no sin, that we, you and I, believers, might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. That is the great exchange. And our debt our crushing debt that we could never pay became exceedingly abundant riches of his grace. So the Bema Seat has nothing to do with the evaluation of our sin. That is gone. It's taken away. Our sin is no longer laid to our account. You say, well, prove it from the text. Okay, Romans chapter 8 is, is pretty clear on this point. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so when you and I stand before the Bema seat, it's not a question of our sinfulness. Why? Because our sin is paid for. It is gone. As far as the east is from the west, Jesus has paid for it. Okay, otherwise, why do we sing Jesus paid it all? Okay, it is gone, right? Paid for. Skip down to verses 33 and 34 of Romans chapter 8. These are some of my favorite verses in all the scripture. It says this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's a rhetorical question that has no answer. Why? Because it is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Again, a rhetorical question. Why? Because it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Our sin is gone. Jesus Christ paid for it. So the Bema Seat is not about the evaluation of our sin. It's crucial for us to understand this truth in order for us to understand the Bema correctly. So this is not a time for us to be punished or to be beaten down for our sinful actions. Rather, it is here that you and I will be rewarded for the spiritual investment that we have made in this life. So to describe the, describe the purpose of the Bema, Paul uses three pictures in his epistles. Okay, so that's letter B there in your notes, the, the pictures of the Bema seat. There's three texts that we're gonna look at tonight where Paul helps to describe Describe what the Bema actually looks like. And the first one is, is a building. Your life as a building. Your life as a building. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll look at this passage together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, 
Paul paints the Bema as a building project. The foundation of the building is our salvation, which is obtained by grace through faith in Christ. That is salvation. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. This is what Paul says in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. What's the foundation? That is our salvation in Christ. And another buildeth thereon. But, this is verse 11, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So you and I are in Christ. That salvation is the foundation of the building. So everybody who comes before the Bema has the same foundation. We are in Christ. He is that foundation. That is our salvation. So Paul, by the grace of God, had proclaimed the message of the gospel in the city of Corinth. Individuals were saved. The foundation of this building was poured. But now, Paul says, every man is building his own building upon that foundation. Okay, so, so you, regardless of your vocation, you are a builder. You are a construction project manager. And your construction project is your life. You are building on the foundation of salvation that you were provided by Jesus Christ. And, and the life which you now live will be tested. The quality of your construction will be assessed. And it's a pretty tough test. It's a pretty tough test. Paul describes it beginning in verse 12. He says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. The fire that tests this building will reduce the wood and the hay and the straw to ashes. But the gold and the silver and the precious stones are are not combustible. So whatever turns into ash will be lost. But what survives will be given to the believer as their reward. So what's the point of this illustration? I think you and I need to remember that we should be living with eternal values in view. It's easy for us to go through life as a good or a moral person while actually accomplishing very little for eternity. Okay, can I just remind you, morality is not our goal. Righteousness is our goal. Investment in God's kingdom program is our goal. Fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment, that is our goal. And sometimes you and I settle for less than what God intends for us. So if I can challenge you, don't settle for good enough in your Christian life. You and I need to strive to accomplish things of lasting spiritual value for the glory of God and for the kingdom of Christ. Jesus Christ reminded, this, uh, reminded us of this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Very familiar verses, you'll recognize them. He says, lay, up, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, fire does not destroy, or where thieves do not break through nor steal. We are not saved by works. Okay? Scripture is explicitly clear on that. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are saved not of works, 
It's by grace, through faith in Christ. But we are saved unto good works. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Our rewards in heaven will be based on what we have by the grace of God, built on the foundation of salvation that he has given us. So your life is like a building, and you and I need to construct it well. We need to construct it well. The second picture that Paul gives us is a race. He gives us the picture of a race or an athletic competition. Okay? Paul, Paul describes our life as a spiritual athlete. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, go ahead and just flip over a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. And beginning in verse 24, Paul says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore run not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In the city of Corinth, athletic events like races, they were incredibly common. And at the conclusion of the race, the victor would approach the bema and he would be given a crown of leaves before being paraded through the streets as a hero. But that was a, it was a temporary crown. After a few days, that crown would decay and, and die, and it would be worthless. But Paul points out in this text that each and every believer who runs an excellent race in their life can win a prize. You know what the great news is? You are not competing against anybody else in this room. Okay, I've run a few distance races in my life. Um, they're, they're okay. <laughs> I guess I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Uh, but... I've run a few distance races, kind of done a couple half marathons and done a marathon. Um, and I was always competing against, I was always competing against other people. And I remember uh, one half marathon that I was running. Uh, Alan and I had actually trained for it together. And that was probably the best shape that I had ever been in in my life. And I uh, worked really, really hard, wanted to run under two hours. And I ran 13 miles in an hour and 50 minutes, which came out to about 825 a mile for 13 miles. So I was pretty happy with that time. And uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty decent uh, until I saw the guy that won my age group. And the guy that won my age group uh, averaged five minute and 19 second miles for 13 miles. And uh, I was like, <laughs> right? I don't have a chance. Um, so you look at that and, and that, that is not a race that I could ever hope to win. Never. But you and I in our spiritual life, we, we have the ability to win the race. You're not competing against the other people in this room. You're competing against yourself. You're competing against yourself, and you have the ability to win. You have the ability to win the prize. If you win, you will receive a permanent, eternal reward that can never decay. The question is, are you running to win? Are you running to win? Paul gives a couple of stipulations in this text. First of all, you and I have to stay on track. We have to stay on the track. Can you imagine if you were watching a race? And all of a sudden, a runner went off the track and started running outside of the stadium, like still running hard, but right, and they just take off. You'd be like, where's that guy going? Right, they have no chance to win. Why? They're no longer in the race. They're off track. Paul says here that he doesn't want to be a castaway. The word there is, is disqualified. Paul doesn't want to be disqualified from the race. When you and I live sinfully, when you and I fulfill 
our own lusts. When you and I walk away from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we fail to run well. We can be disqualified from receiving a reward at the conclusion of our run. Believers need to stay in the lines of the Christian life by studying the Word of God, by pursuing the Son of God, and by following the Spirit of God. Let's not get sidetracked by sinful pleasures, but rather, let's stay in the race. Let's stay on the track. We need to stay on course in our spiritual life. Secondly, you and I need to stay focused. You and I need to stay focused. Paul in this passage says that he doesn't wander aimlessly. Right? That means that he's laser focused on what's in front of him. Has anybody in here heard the name Jim Walmsley? Anybody? Okay, Jim Walmsley is one of the premier ultra marathon runners in the world today. Uh, in 2016, he was 26 years old. He was working at a bike shop and went out and he decided that he was going to run one of the most prestigious 100-mile races in the world, which is the Western States 100. And uh, it, was, it was crazy. He, he trained. And in 2016, he was on pace to shatter the course record. For over 90 miles, he attacked the course with just an incredible tenacity. He was 20 minutes ahead of a course record pace and over an hour ahead of his nearest competitor. I mean, this guy was blowing it out. But then at mile 93 in Northern California, he got disoriented, he missed a tight left turn, and he veered well off course. An hour later, a crew of photographers found him lying on the 105-degree pavement off of Highway 49. So you can actually, there's actually a documentary on it. It's called Lost on 49. And so it was uh, at mile 93, I think he ran about seven miles, seven miles out of the way. So he lost the record. He lost the lead, and he lost any chance of a top 10 finish. So the course record was completely out of grasp. He, to his credit, he zombie walked back to the course. What that means is like, I mean, at that point, your body's just pretty much shot. And, and so he managed to, to cross the finish line, and he still finished in 20th place, which is pretty good. And uh, just an incredible, just an incredible story. Now, I will say this. Two years later, he went back to Western States, and he did set the course record, and he did it by running eight-minute miles for over 100 miles. And he's running over mountain ranges, which is insanity. All right? Uh, he, also set the course, or he also set the world record for the rim-to-rim run in the Grand Canyon. Uh, just an, an, an incredible runner. But one thing that people will never forget about Jim Walmsley's career is the fact that he got lost on 49. All right? He got, he got distracted. He, he, lost, he lost focus. For a minute, he was laser focused for 93 miles, so close to the finish line, and he missed a turn. He missed it. Okay? He wasn't as focused as he needed to be. And I would, I would just tell you, in our Christian life, it's easy to veer off course by doing things that aren't necessarily wrong, but they're not necessarily helpful either. We can miss a turn by pursuing our own comfort or our own career or our own hobbies, rather than following the purposes and the plans that God has for our life. The author of Hebrews, if you remember, in chapter 12 and verse 1, he urges us to lay aside not just our sinful behaviors, but also the distractions of life that can keep us from running the best race that we can. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, the author there writes, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Now, what are the weights? Okay, well, he, he says next, we also need to set aside the sin. So I don't think that the weight here is sin, 
But rather, I think that the weight here are earthly distractions that are holding us back from running the best possible race that we can for Christ. So he says, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. We need to stay on the course and we need to stay focused. We need to stay focused. Finally, let me just encourage you. Uh, running our race also requires discipline. They notice that Paul talks about how the athlete trains their body. I remember when I was training to run, training to run a marathon. Uh, Saturday, Saturday mornings, uh, three and a half hour training runs were not uncommon. Um, and it was, just, it was just a whole new level of, of discipline. And there was time spent researching the best food to eat when you're out on the course, because you have to eat when you're running for that long. Uh, the best types of drinks to be able to drink. Do you rehydrate with Gatorade or do you use pickle juice or, you know, there's some nasty stuff you got to eat out there on the course. And, and so there's just a lot of research and then there's just the, the flat time that you got to spend on, on the road. There's a ton of discipline that is involved to do this and especially to do it at a high level. And in our spiritual life, it requires discipline as well. You and I can't walk through the Christian life without intentionality and expect to run well and expect to run well. So you and I have the responsibility to train ourselves to godliness. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7, and 8, he says, Refuse profane and old wise fables. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So if I were to ask you, what does your spiritual life look like? Are you in the gym and training yourself spiritually? Or are you sitting on the couch and eating Doritos? Right? I mean, spiritually speaking, are you disciplining yourself to godliness? We have the responsibility to stay on track. We need to be focused. We need to train hard. We need to run well. We need to run well. The third picture that Paul gives us is that of a manager or a trustee. Your life, your life as a manager. The final illustration that Paul uses here, and you can turn over to Romans chapter 14 so we can look at this passage together but he uses the picture of a manager or of a trustee. So what, what is a trustee? Well, it's a person who manages money or property for, for its owner. Okay, so if I, if I were to own some, some property, if, if I were to own a farm or something like that, and I were to give it to Matt and say, Matt, I want you to manage this for me, and I'm going to check in with you, and you're going to give me regular updates on, on how things are going. He is now my trustee of that property. So trustees have a responsibility to make the best possible decisions and investments so that the owners can get the best possible return. Look at Romans chapter 14, look at verse 10. It says, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Look at verse 12. So then every one of us shall give account Hey, that's where the trustee idea comes in here. Every one of us will give account of himself to God. So God has given all of us a trust. He's given all of you assets, talents, opportunities, gifts. And when we stand before the Bema, Christ is going to ask to see the return on the investment that he has made in us. When we stand before him, the question that he will ask is, what have you done with what I have given to you? Now, there's a couple of things that you and I should take away from this. First of all, our evaluation, as we've already stated, is not a competition. It is not a competition. 
you and I will each give our own account before God. So our focus isn't supposed to be on other believers, right? Like you and I comparing themselves by themselves, right? They became, they were fools, right? Remember, I don't remember exactly the text. I'm kind of working that one off the back of my brain. But you guys remember the passage, okay? So we shouldn't compare ourselves by ourselves, but rather we should focus on Jesus Christ. Yeah, we need to stay focused and become more like him. That's the goal. When we stand before the Bema, we're not competing with anybody else. It's a personal account with what we have done, with the investment and the gifts and the opportunities and the abilities that the Lord has given to us. It's personal. Okay? You will stand before God and give an account for you. Secondly, you and I are not going to be held responsible for gifts they don't possess or opportunities that they didn't have. So God has given you a trust and you are responsible for the investment that God gave to you. You're not responsible for other people's gifts and abilities. So this, this is awesome because it provides us all an equal opportunity for spiritual victory and for spiritual reward. So some of you have gifts that I don't have. And I may have a gift or two that some of you don't have. But when we stand before God, it doesn't matter what I have or what you have. We each stand responsible for what God has given to us. And that puts us all on equal footing as we stand before God at the Bema. Okay? We're, we're just responsible. We're not responsible for what we don't have. That brings us to the third one. We are responsible for what we do have. We are responsible for what God has given to us. I do think that means that a person who's been given lots of talents and gifts will be held accountable for their management of that. So if God has richly blessed you, there's a higher level of accountability to invest well with those opportunities and talents. Listen, the bottom line here is this. Don't squander what God has given you. Don't squander what God has given you. He is the owner. We are the trustee. He has made an investment in us and we will stand before the owner and give an account on the return in his investment. What kind of an account will we be able to give? What kind of an account will we be able to give? So these three, these three illustrations demonstrate the nature of a bima. It, it, is, it, it is a place of reward. And we'll discuss that in a second. But let me encourage you. You and I, we need to build strong. We need to build strong. We need to run well. And we need to invest wisely. We need to invest wisely. Let's keep our eyes on the bima and earn the rewards that the Lord desires to give to us. Now, let's, let's wrap this up and talk about the promise, the promise of the bima seat. The promise of the bima seat. Now, there's another question here that needs to be asked. And the question that needs to be asked is this. Will believers who fail to build and run and invest in this life be filled with sorrow in heaven when they stand before the Bema? Right, so say that somebody doesn't invest as well as they should have. Say that somebody might have strayed off course and not run the race that they should have. What does this look like for them when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ? It's a fair question. I will say this. I, I, have heard, I have heard some preaching on the Bema Seat of Christ where it has been wielded like a weapon trying to beat believers into obedience, right? You need to obey because you're going to stand before God one day. I think that if we preach it that way, I think if we teach it that way, we fail to recognize the purpose of the Bema Seat. This isn't a weapon to be wielded. Rather, this is a reality for us to embrace because we will stand before God and have an opportunity to give an account of what he has invested in us. Also, 
well, let me say, it should be a motivation for us, okay? Not, it's not a scare tactic, it's a motivation, okay? And it, and it should remind us, it should buoy our faith and help us to keep our eyes on the prize. Now, heaven is not, heaven is not a place of sorrow. I think scripture is pretty clear about that. Heaven is not a place of sorrow. If we all spent eternity in sorrow over what we did not do, then we would not truly be in heaven, <laughs> okay? Could, could there be some regret? Could an individual stand before the Bema, give a poor account, and could they experience some regret for that? I, I think so. I think absolutely. But understand that the overwhelming emotion in heaven will be joy. Why? Because each of us has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Each of us has the same foundation, and we will all enter into the joy of our Lord together. Think of it, think of it this way. Think of it this way. Uh, think of like a high school or a college graduation. At the graduation ceremony, there are individuals who, there's a valedictorian, there's a salutatorian, there's individuals who get to wear cords for highest honors, high honors. I didn't wear any of those. All right, my wife did, I didn't. All right, so, but individuals, they, 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 wear, they wear some of those, those cords. Others receive special awards of distinction that, that make them stand out. Some others on graduation day, they, they may have a little twinge of regret as they're sitting there and they thought, ah, man, maybe I should have applied myself a little bit more and not played Call of Duty in the dorm all those nights, right? A little more time studying, a little less time on, on the video games. But the overwhelming emotion on graduation day is what? Joy. Why? Because years of study and sacrifice and effort have finally been accomplished. And everybody that walks away walks away with a diploma. Why? Because you graduated. You graduated. So listen, all of us as believers, we will all receive a diploma. Why? Because we are in Christ. We have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Will some be rewarded more than others? Yes. Will some receive distinction for a life lived well on earth? Yes. Will some receive special validation or will some receive special exaltation because of an exceptional race that they've run? Yes. But all of us will experience the joy on graduation day. And we'll all receive the diploma because we are in Christ. So while I think that there may be some regret, I think individuals will recognize that they could have done more, they could have invested more, they could have run better, but I do think that that regret is fleeting and eventually we will all come and there will be joy because we are with Jesus. So the Bema Seed is not a weapon to be wielded. It is a reality to be embraced. It's a motivation for us to build and to run, and to invest well now. So when we do stand before Christ, we'll hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So the final question I want to ask is this. For, for those who achieve high honors, who have their building built of precious stones, what awards do they receive? Okay, we've talked about you get rewards, okay, but does that mean that we're just going to be like, Hoarders, right? So, so when, you're, when, when, when our building is tested, right, we get the gold, silver, and precious stones, does that mean that we take that and, and just go and, and, and hoard it? I, I don't think so. I mean, God is already building us a mansion, and we're going to walk on streets of gold. So I, I don't think that that's going to be a need for us. So what then is the reward that you and I receive? I think that the reward comes in the form of authority and responsibility in the administration of God's future kingdom. So for those who run well, for those who invest well in this life, they will be given opportunities 
additional opportunities and additional responsibility when we rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Listen, there's lots of opportunities in God's government, okay? There, there's positions like Secretary of State, but then somebody has to work at the DMV, right? I mean, so, so the question becomes, the question becomes, how will you invest today? I do think that how you live today directly impacts the, the, the reward and the responsibility that we have in God's future kingdom. We talked a little bit about that last week. Okay, but let me just give you a couple of references quickly that talk about the fact that you and I will rule and reign with Christ. In Revelation 20 and verse six, it says, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In Revelation 22 and verse five, it says, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. When I coach sports, players are rewarded with game time based on the way they perform in training. Listen, if you don't come to practice, or if you walk through practice, you don't play in the game. Okay? The, the way that you perform in training directly impacts the time, amount of time that you get in the game. You walk through training, sit on the bench. Work, develop, train hard, you've earned, you've earned game time. And I think this, it's the same principle in our spiritual life. Those who work hard in training today will be given the joyful responsibility of larger and more prominent roles in God's eternal administration. So let me, let me leave you with one big takeaway. You and I need to evaluate our own lives today. It's not simply enough for us to avoid evil and go through the motions in our spiritual life. It's not enough. What God desires are servants who incorporate and live out those things that make a true impact for eternity from his perspective. When you stand before the Lord, will you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Okay, that's, that's the bema. That's the bema. That's the judgment for believers. Okay, now let's transition and let's talk quickly. Right, that, that was two-thirds of my lesson. All right, we'll work through the judgment for unbelievers here pretty quickly. Okay, but let's talk about the judgment for unbelievers. Okay, this is obviously the more unpleasant of our two topics this evening. This is the great white throne judgment. And the scene here is a great courtroom with God as the judge. The primary passage that refers to this is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And I just want to read it to you quickly. It says this, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's talk quickly about the courtroom of the great white throne. The courtroom of the great white throne. The great white throne is God's supreme court of the universe. Let me make a couple notes about the throne quickly. First of all, it is great. The Greek word there is mega, right? It is great because it is the highest judicial throne in all of the universe. It is white because of God's holiness and purity and righteousness. All those who stand before this throne can be sure that the judge of all the earth will do right. Every verdict that is handed down from this throne can be trusted to be righteous 
and just. Now, let's look at the case. Have you guys, have you guys all been in a courtroom? Or have you, like, you like served on jury duty or something along, those, something along those lines? Okay, so as we talk through the great white throne, I want, you to, I want you to picture in your mind, I want you to picture a courtroom. Yeah, because I'm going to use court language as we walk through this to try to help you understand and visualize what I think that this looks like. Okay, so first of all, let's discuss the judge. Let's discuss the judge. The judge in this courtroom is none other than God himself. He is the one who will pass judgment and pronounce the sentence for those who have failed to accept the free gift of salvation that he has provided by sending his son to die on the cross. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, Abraham calls God the judge of all the earth. And at the great white throne, God will completely own that title. God is the judge. Secondly, the defendants. The defendants. Who are the defendants in this case? The defendants in this courtroom are the dead, both small and great. And scripture makes it abundantly clear that these individuals are all those who have died without placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All of the unbelieving dead will stand here. Everyone from Alexander the Great and Hitler to the most seemingly insignificant person whose life never touched the pages of a history book. The self-righteous will be there. The most heinous of sinners will be there. The religious person who sat in the pew week in and week out, but always trusted in himself to get to heaven will be there. No unsaved person will have the ability to escape their day in court. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you will stand before the judge in his courtroom. Third, see the summons. The summons. Today, good lawyers can get cases postponed or they can get them dismissed entirely. Plea bargains can be struck. Sometimes people post bail and flee to avoid court. That's why we have bounty hunters. But in that day, there will be no place to hide. All of those that are summoned to appear will be there. Notice where they are summoned from. The text says that first they are summoned from Hades. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And this is a place where the unbelieving dead are currently being tormented, waiting for their day to stand before the judge. Their souls and spirits will be brought out of hell. They'll be reunited with their resurrection body and then the whole person will stand before God to be judged. Second, it says that the dead are also summoned from the sea. It's actually interesting. So we understand that all the unbelieving dead, their bodies are in the sea or in the ground and their souls and spirits are in Haiti. I think that the reason that John includes this word sea here is because in the ancient world, the sea was considered to be the most inaccessible place that you could be. No one could travel to the depths of the ocean. And in the Greek and Roman world, it was believed that nobody that was buried in the ocean could ever be disturbed. And John says, no, those who are in Hades, they will be called up. Even those who are in the sea, they will be called up as well. So there's nobody who will be able to escape. God wants us to recognize that even the most difficult, out-of-the-way places for man are fully accessible to God. And there is a reality of future judgment. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. After this, the judgment. Now let's look at the evidence. What evidence is presented against these defendants? Uh, There's two pieces of evidence. And these pieces of evidence apply to every person and they're indisputable in every single case that God presides over. 
the first piece, let's call it exhibit A, it's the books, right? And I saw the books is what John said. I, I think, this is a little bit of speculation on my part, but I believe that the evidence contained in these books provides an account of the life of every unbeliever. Sinful actions and motives and thoughts will be recorded and presented before the judge. Each person will be condemned because of their own rebellion against the King of Kings. And the books makes it clear how grave that rebellion is. This is why the Apostle John states in verse, six, six, or verse 13, I'm sorry, and they were judged every man according to their works. So the book shows us what those works are. The second exhibit, Exhibit B, this is an even more telling piece of evidence. This is the, the book of life. And the book of life contains in it the names of every sinner who has, by the grace of God, placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. By accepting the mercy of the judge, the individuals whose names are recorded in the book of life are pardoned from ever having to appear before the great white throne. On the day of judgment, this book is opened and consulted to see if the name of the defendants are found there. But everybody who stands before this judgment, their names will not be found in the book of life. So what then is the verdict? What then is the verdict? When an unsaved individual is not found in the book of life and is judged for their works, there can only be one verdict. And the verdict is guilty. The gavel of God will ring out and the guilty will be condemned. And you and I need to recognize that this verdict is final, it's eternal, and there is no appeals process. Warren Wearsby captures, he, 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 talked about, he was talking about the great white throne and he said this. He said, the white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne, there will be a judge, but no jury a prosecution, but no defense, a sentence, but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself or accuse God of unrighteousness. They understand how awesome, and I use that word not lightly, how awesome and terrible this judgment will be. So what then is the conclusion of the great white throne? What's the conclusion? After an individual is found guilty at the great white throne, they are condemned and sentenced to the most terrifying of consequences. Conscious torment in the lake of fire for all of eternity. Next week, we'll discuss that in more detail. Let me make a couple of notes, though, up front, because there's always some questions about this. And so if I can address this this evening, maybe it'll be helpful for you. First of all, I do believe that the Bible teaches that there will be various degrees of punishment in the lake of fire based on the evidence that is found in the books. So based on how a person has lived in this life does impact the degree of punishment that they suffer for eternity. The length of the person's sentence is the same, but the severity of the punishment is tied both to the amount and to the nature of the sin committed in this life. You say, well, where do you see that in Scripture? A little bit of inference, okay? But let me remind you of the words of Jesus when he had done miracles and tried to preach the gospel in the kingdom of some of the cities in his hometown. Okay, Matthew 11 records this. It says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! 
Woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works, so Jesus had come and done miracles to validate his kingdom message. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they heard the message of the kingdom, they saw the miracles that authenticated it, and they chose to reject it anyway. Okay, that was opportunities that the pagans did not have. As a result, their punishment will be more severe. He says, and thou Capernaum, which are exalted into heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So again, I understand that that's a little bit of inference here, but I do believe that there are degrees of punishment. Second, I want you to remember that appearing before the great white throne is not a requirement for those that place their faith and trust in Christ. Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for us. He paid the penalty of sins for all mankind. And all that an individual has to do to be excused from this judgment is place their faith in the free gift of salvation that God offers to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we place the gospel message in the context of the great white throne judgment, it reminds us of how truly incredible the free gift of salvation is. That's why Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, as we have said consistently through this course, scripture is not just for knowing, it's for living. And so how should these two judgments impact the way that you and I live today? When we walk out the doors tonight, what's our take home truth? Okay, let me give you two suggestions, okay? And I've entitled this final point, the judgments in the church. The judgments in the church. How should this impact us? Okay, so first of all, the first question, I wanna ask you two questions. And the first question is this, are you living your faith? Are you living your faith? The Bema Sea Judgment reminds us that God desires for us to be active in our faith, building things that have lasting spiritual value. This includes helping others find and follow Jesus, building generations of godliness in your family, serving in your local church, and making disciples through supporting the work of the gospel both at home and abroad. God hasn't called us to just exist. God has called us to build and to run and to invest. Now listen, I think that there are a lot of Christians today that are going through the motions in their spiritual life. They come to church and they sit and they soak and they sour, okay? Like a sponge that doesn't get run out, wrung out. They come and they hear the truth and they leave exactly the same way as they were when they came in. And as a result, they start to get a critical spirit, okay? They start to look around and become judgmental. This is how we turn into Pharisees. We look good on the outside and on the inside, we're just dead on the inside. That is not what God has called us to. God has called us to wring ourselves out, to invest for his glory, to advance his purposes, to build things that have lasting eternal value. So are you going through the motions of your spiritual life or are you actively building something that will endure? And this is the incredible thing. And, and don't miss this point. God has not called you to do this by yourself. You understand that? So God has saved you by grace. And today, 
by grace, he is giving you the opportunity to build and to run and to invest. He hasn't called you to do that by yourself. So God wants to use you. He wants his grace to flow through you so that you can do these things so that he can reward you. So the rewards that we get from God at the Bema are made possible because his grace is working in us and through us. So God has saved you by grace and he's continuing to invest through you by grace. You say, well, prove that from the text. Okay, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says this, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's, the, that's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. We need to work out our salvation. Okay, this is the running and the building and the investing. But God hasn't called us to do it by ourselves. Because look at verse 13. He says, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God has saved you by grace. He's working in you by grace so that you can earn rewards that he's going to give you. And he's going to reward you handsomely for what he enables you to do today. But understand that you and I need to be people that God can use. And we do have a part to play in this. We need to run and invest. We need to build. That comes through passionately pursuing the person of Jesus Christ, making investments today that matter for eternity. And as we do that, God works for us and in us and through us. So are you living your faith? Secondly, let me conclude with this. Are you sharing your faith? Are you sharing your faith? A consistent challenge in this course has been the need to share the gospel with a lost and broken and dying world. The great white throne judgment should impress on us the need to share the gospel with those that we care about. I mean, the great white throne is a, this is terrifying, a terrifying day of reckoning. But people do not have to appear if they place their faith and trust in Christ. So let me ask you a question. And this is a personal question. You don't need to raise your hand. I just want you to think for a second. Have you personally shared the gospel with one person since we started this course? This, this challenge to share your faith has been a consistent theme as we've walked through these lessons. Have you shared the gospel with one person since we've been walking through this course? If the answer to that question is no, can I challenge you to pray for a gospel opportunity this week? Pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity to share the gospel personally with somebody this week and then be prepared when that opportunity presents itself. A crucial part of us living out our faith is making disciples by helping people find and follow Jesus. And this means that we need to be sharing his message with other people. Scripture is not just for knowing, it's for living. May God help us to live it.